Welcome, church, as we have come together to worship and to celebrate. Thank you for taking time to be with us today, whether you're joining us uh, during our live feed on online.church or if you're watching on YouTube or listening to us on our podcast, wherever you get those. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us as we share together in God's Word. We're in the middle of a series, series Dangerous Prayers, and we're looking at an old Celtic prayer and we're praying them with a fresh spirit, uh, expecting God to answer them. And therefore, we see the danger in seeing what it means when we ask God to give us uh, the gifts of, of, of vision, of light, of wisdom, of courage, and of trust. So uh, I'd invite you, as you're able, uh, to pray with me uh, together, out loud, as we pray this ancient Celtic prayer. Lord of our heart, give us vision to inspire us, that working or resting we may always think of you. Lord of our heart, give us light to guide us, that at home or abroad we may always walk in your way. Lord of our heart, give us wisdom to direct us, that thinking or acting we may always discern right from wrong. Lord of our heart, give us courage to strengthen us, that amongst friends or enemies we may always proclaim your justice. Lord of our heart, give us trust to console us, that hungry or well-fed we may always rely on your mercy. Amen. Today is week two in our Dangerous Prayer series, and each week we're looking at uh, one of those petitions. Last week we looked at, Lord of our heart, give us vision to inspire us. Uh, if you missed that sermon, uh, you can still uh, keep up with us on this sermon. They don't necessarily build on each other. But we would encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash South Suburban Christian Church, or to our website at southsuburban.com sermons, and uh, either watch or listen to that message. I pray that these messages will encourage us, encourage us minister to us, and prepare us uh, for God's answer, knowing uh, the danger that is in each of these petitions. Today we're looking at, Lord of our heart, give us light to guide us. I want to share together a text from Gospel of John. I'm not going to read the whole story. I'd encourage you to do that. It's John chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 12, and the whole story goes all the way through verse 30. So uh, at some point, I hope today, or at some point in your preparation and prayers this week, uh, that you spend some time in all of this text. I'm going to be focusing predominantly on that uh, first verse uh, in this story, verse 12. So let us hear these words from God's Word. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible, the very first words of your Bible in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And then those very first words 
ever spoken from our Creator and our first point. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the English language, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, the word darkness is defined as the partial or total absence of light. Subsequently, the English language defines the word light as that which makes possible, that which makes it possible to see things. I, I think that's amazing. If you look at those two definitions of how we in the English language define those two concepts, because without light, you can't even define darkness, since darkness is defined as the total or partial absence of light. And yet at the same time, light is a word that stands on its own. As a matter of fact, it's the first step in being able to see the vision God has given to us. As we remember from last week, Lord of our hearts, give us a vision to inspire us. Well, for most everyone with whom I have talked these past two weeks, there is enough darkness to go around, isn't there? No matter where you are on the political spectrum, these days that we find ourselves in have been defined by many people in many different conversations as a dark time in the life of our nation, in the life of our world. From pandemics to riots to struggles about racial reconciliation to the events that we have seen at the U.S. Capitol just a few weeks ago. We Christians and we Americans, we citizens of the world, have found ourselves in pretty tumultuous times. But it's really not the first time that we have found ourselves in these kinds of times, especially we Christians. Uh, there are some instances in our own history as followers of Jesus Christ where uh, years ago, can I say, and I mean years ago, like in the year 248 A.D., as Christians were struggling with persecution and with an empire that was beginning to change from pagan to Christian, Christians began to literally riot and street fight with non-Christians. In the city of Alexandria, which was uh, in the northern part of Africa, Christians were especially prone to violence to ensure that their rights and their understanding of what was given to them by God would be secured. As a matter of fact, that consternation, that, that, that conflict between Christians and pagans in the city of Alexandria would eventually erupt into an all-out insurrection in the year 20, uh, 325. As a matter of fact, in that year, Christians literally stormed the pagan temples of Alexandria, homes of pagans who lived in Alexandria, and government buildings. Uh, they looted them. They chased the pagans out of the city. And in some cases, they even beat pagans to death. Really wasn't one of our finest days. And what is so troubling is as we read the, the record of those events, they seem like one event over the course of two dates. But as you do the math and look at those dates, 
this conflict, this violence that was a part of the life with Christians and non-Christians in the city of Alexandria lasted over 75 years, perhaps 100 years before things finally began to settle down. Doesn't give us a whole lot of hope for hoping when these days of division will finally be over. Here in the United States, we often forget how our faith, the Christian faith, has been weaponized by folks on all different kinds of sides. As a matter of fact, in the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party in 1773, the flames of rebellion were just beginning uh, to grow. And a preacher by the name of John Wesley, you might know him as one of the founders, if not the principal founder of Methodism, he would write a sermon and he would send that sermon to the colonies with his expectation that it would be circulated among all of the Christians of the colonies. His sermon was about how if those of us here in the American colonies would rebel against the king, we ought to recognize that it was the same as if we were rebelling against God. Meanwhile, Presbyterian pastors here in the colonies were putting out their own sermons, arguing that if we did not rebel against the king, then we were taking up arms with the devil uh, seeking to support the tyranny of England. And that wasn't the last time we have seen egregious behavior here in our great nation. We have all but forgotten the only successful coup d'etat that ever happened in the United States of America. Historians call it the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, when a mob forcibly deposed a duly elected city government and established their own, a move that went unchecked as state and federal officials refused to intervene. We pride ourselves as a country of law and order. Well, history hasn't been so clear to us. There's the New York City riots of 1863, the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921 in Logan County, West Virginia, where 15,000 miners, many of them World War I veterans, took up arms against a local sheriff and his 3,000 supporters. The battle was so severe that federal troops needed to be sent in. There's the Battle of Athens, Tennessee in 1946, when a group of World War II veterans, this case, traded gunfire with sheriff deputies all night long on Election Day. They began to even throw sticks of dynamite at the jailhouse, which ultimately led to the sheriff deputies surrendering to the rioting mob. <laughs> Lots of folks say that this is not who we are. The riots of this past summer, the storming of the U.S. Capitol, and all of the historical events that I just shared with you seem to suggest otherwise. And most every single one of those historical incidences that apparently are no longer taught today in schools and many of us are completely unfamiliar with, the guilty were ultimately held responsible, proving that although not perfect, even though law and order may be elusive, the rule of law prevailed. And that, I think, is the distinctiveness that we need to remember in the history of our country. We haven't always been a people of law and order, but we have always been a people of the rule of law. 
That's what makes our grand experiment as a democratic republic so unique. We don't sit under a human leader. We sit under the rule of law, the Constitution. A human document, to be sure, but one that seeks to circumscribe the tendency of the human heart to prefer darkness over light. Let there be light. The second point that I want to share with you today is that darkness is a human problem. But my job as your pastor is to point us toward the light. Now, as a pastor over the years, I have been asked to condemn this or condemn that. I've been encouraged time and time again to condemn the darkness, point out the sin that's here, point out the sin that's over there. When I was ordained to the gospel ministry as a minister of the Word and Sacrament, I was asked a series of questions known as an ordination vow. In many ways, they were dangerous vows, dangerous prayers. One of them was, and I quote to you, Scripture teaches that the church was devoted to the apostles' teachings and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Will you endeavor faithfully to fulfill your calling among the people, commit it to your care, by preaching the word of God and the apostolic faith, and by celebrating baptism and the Lord's Supper? My response, I will, with the help of God. Another question that I was asked. In Scripture, ministers, pastors, are challenged to tend to the flock of God committed to their care. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for selfish gain, but eagerly. Not by domineering over those in their charge, but by example. Will you endeavor to care for the people of God, nourishing, teaching, and encouraging them, giving direction to the life of the congregation, counseling the troubled, declaring God's forgiveness of sin, and proclaiming the new life that we find in Christ Jesus? My answer, I will, with the help of God. Another question. The Spirit of God led Jesus to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty the oppressed, and proclaim the time of God's good favor. Will you, and here they dropped my name in, will you, Isaac, endeavor to lead the people of God and their commitment to the global mission of the church guiding their concern for justice, freedom, and peace for all people, and taking a place of responsible leadership and service in the church and in the world? My answer, I will, with the help of God. Another question. With Jesus as your example, Will you, Isaac, endeavor to conduct yourself so that your life is shaped by Jesus Christ, who took the form of a servant for our sake? And will you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, continually rekindle the gift of God that is in you to make known to all people the gospel of the grace of God? I will with the help of God. I take these vows very 
seriously. My family takes these vows very seriously for it impacts them as well. And one of the ways that I have sought to fulfill this covenant as I made a promise to you, even before I knew you, as I knelt before the table of the Lord in 1995, and I promised God before the church of Jesus Christ as the elders laid hands on me that I would always point toward the light and not the darkness. Like you, I don't find my salvation in any nation made with human hands, and I certainly don't find my salvation in any particular party, be it political or otherwise. And at the same time, you and I are not blind to the fact that there is good and there is evil in this world. I'm also strongly convinced that the witness of Scripture, that within the hearts of every human being, there is the potential for great darkness, but there is also the potential for great light. There is the potential of evil, and in the absence of Jesus Christ, that evil will never be forced to flee, and we will not be the vessels through which God extends His grace to the world. It is the light of Jesus Christ that illuminates, that lights the path upon which you and I are called to walk each day. Now, as a pastor who loves you very much, and as a pastor who is, quite frankly, burdened with the care of your eternal soul, please, Please be careful that we are not seduced by the idea that a party or a political opinion is somehow the highest moral ground on which we can stand. The issues may seem clear to us, but they also may seem clear to our opponents. And though I do not want to alienate any of you, and although I think you all will agree that for us to cling to anything else or anyone else other than Jesus Christ is, quite frankly, idolatry. But as most of you know, clinging to the name of Jesus is, quite literally, recognizing that the way of the cross will be for us the way of life. The third point that I want to share with you is, is that the light will guide us. The events that are laid out here in John chapter 8 really begin back in John chapter 7. When Jesus' own brothers, who did not believe in him yet, taunt him about going up to a feast in Jerusalem known as the Feast of of the tabernacles. And so Jesus, without the support of his family, has made his way to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this seven-day Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration of the Lord's provision for the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt into the wilderness 
leading them by a cloud by the day and, and, and a pillar of fire at night. And for those seven days, the Israelites are supposed to live in tabernacles or tents or booths. That's how they commemorate that event. As a matter of fact, if you want to go to the prophet Nehemiah chapter 8, Uh, The prophet outlines what this might have looked like as the entirety of the Hebrew nation, all of the Israelites, left their homes and slept in roughly constructed tabernacles made of leafy branches and vines, tied together, not so tight, so as to prevent them from being able to see out of their temporary shelters. You see, the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't about the leafy tents that they constructed, or the light of the sun or the moon that shined through the cracks between the leaves, but it was the light of the fiery pillar that burned at night as the Israelites slept in the camp. As we pick up here in chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus finds himself confronted by the Pharisees and Jewish leaders of the day. His teachings have challenged them. You might say that his teachings have challenged both of the political parties of the time. All of the political parties of his day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers. You see, all of those groups were rivals, and the two principal rivals being the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Their goal was to to, to, to win the hearts and minds of the people so uh, that uh, their influence and, and their wealth and their statue and their position would be the ones that prevailed at the expense of the other. You might say that one of the beautiful things about Jesus' life is he was a unifying influence on both the Pharisees and Sadducees because finally, The Pharisees and the Sadducees had found something that they could agree on, something that would bring them together. Jesus needed to go. It's not an accident that Jesus was confronted in what was called the court of women in the temple complex in Jerusalem. You see, during this celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there would have been four large pillars in each corner of that courtyard. And they were lit during this seven-day celebration, symbolic of the pillar of fire by night. Now, if you were in that courtyard, you'd be able to see the bronze gate to the east as well as the gate to the west of that courtyard. And those big, amazing, beautiful, otherworldly gates would reflect the light of those pillars, illuminating the entire courtyard to almost a blinding glow. And Jesus, as he's engaging with these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, he's using this setting with those pillars of flame to explain who he is. In verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the religious leaders knew that the pillars of light in that courtyard symbolized the presence of God in their midst as they wandered in the darkness and the presence of God in their midst on that day. 
The people gathered to celebrate this festival. They knew that light was God. So when Jesus claims that he is the light of the world, he is, quite frankly, claiming his rightful identity as God the Son, as Emmanuel, as God with us, the light of the world. You know, there are various versions of the story that I'm about to share with you. But there was a daughter who was struggling, struggling in her marriage, struggling feeling like she was a failure to her children, exhausted, feeling as if there was no hope for her or her family in this world. She went home after a particularly difficult season dealing with all of the pressures of the world and, 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 and her lack of hope and, and her lack of, of, of confidence in the future. And she went home to mom. It was late afternoon when she arrived, and some of the rays of the setting sun still filled the front room of her childhood home. Her mother welcomed her into the house, and as they sat down together in the main living room, she lit a candle and sat it on the table. The mother said to her daughter, this candle represents Christ. The light of the sun represents the world that she identified with. The world that we all hope for and dream for. A world that's filled with joy. A world that's filled with happiness. A, a loving husband. A, a obedient children. A culture that respects her for who she is and not for, what just, not for what she just provides. With the sun's light, as they sat and as they talked, they never paid any attention to the candle. It was almost as if the rays of the sun made the light of the candle unnecessary. But as the sun set, and as the darkness began to creep into the room, the daughter found that her attention was drawn more and more to the candle. And as the sun ultimately set, and darkness prevailed... She found that the only thing upon which she looked in that room was that candle. Her mother then said to her, Unfortunately, it is only, the, it is only when we find ourselves in darkness that we realize our need for light. You see, a candle shines in the darkness in such a way that one can see it for miles. The darker the room, the brighter the light of the candle. You see, daughter, it is in the darkness that we realize how much we need the light. So never fear the darkness, because as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the light. And we have that light especially at night, when it seems like darkness has won. You know, I wonder if those of us who feel like we're walking in darkness, I wonder if we need to see the light of Jesus as much as those of us who feel like we've been walking in the light. You see, the lights of the lampstands in the temple court during the Feast of Tabernacles were a powerful reminder to the Hebrew people. 
and were a powerful illustration of what Jesus was trying to convey to them. You know, it's easy to trust in Jesus as your light and your salvation when everything is going well. And perhaps one of the benefits of this pandemic, of the civil unrest that we have seen, of the division of our nation, is that it reminds us that we need Jesus. All of us. For Jesus is the light of the world. I'm grateful that Jesus is here. I'm grateful that Jesus is with us when we are lonely and grieving. I'm grateful that the light of Christ can illuminate our life in times of hopelessness and confusion. I'm grateful that when the storms come and the unrest seems to be our norm, that the light of the world continues to shine, even in the darkest places. I think the greater challenge for us will not be how to get through these uncertain times, for the light shows us the way. But the challenge is what will we do in the time to come? That's the greatest challenge. That is, is when the clouds of winter begin to break up and when the warmth of spring begins to come and we find ourselves, hopefully, on the other side of these tumultuous times, will we be tempted to forget the light of the world? There was a tradition at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles in the time of Jesus. Two priests would sound the ram's horn, walking eastward uh, through the temple courtyard toward the rising sun, and then they would turn around their backs to the sun and their face facing the temple. This act, this, th this course of of action of worship developed and became a tradition as an intentional effort to directly contradict the actions of some of their forebears that they had read about in the prophet Ezekiel. When Ezekiel had said that the Hebrews stood in the inner courts of the temple and turned their backs on the temple of the Lord and faced the rising sun as their salvation instead of God. There was a psalm that would have been read, frankly, would have been sung immediately after that action. It's in your Bibles. Psalm 121. I'll spare you so I won't sing it to you. But as I begin to say its words, I bet many of you will be able to say it with me. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And God said, let there be light. Lord of our heart, give us light to guide us that at home 
or abroad, we may always walk in your way. That is a dangerous prayer. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Would you embrace the way of the cross as your way of life? And in the midst of a tumultuous and dark world, allow Christ to shine His light through your life. Will you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you have said yes this day to that, if you have chosen the light to guide your path, will you click that button that you've made that decision if you're on our online.church platform, or will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that together we can walk as brothers and sisters as the light of Christ lights our way. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, heal our land and heal our hearts. Be the light that guides us, that wherever we might go, wherever we might find ourselves, we may always walk in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.